Hello and welcome to Everyday Sublime, the podcast that explores a full-spectrum spirituality. I'm your host, Josh Summers, and I'm very glad you're here today. Okay, a little housekeeping before today's interview. Um, today, this episode is the, it's hard to believe, but this episode is the 100th episode of Everyday Sublime. This podcast began in the late summer of 2017. So we're just over three years old. And as, it, as it, in the beginning, this podcast really uh, focused exclusively on the themes of yin yoga, Chinese medicine, and meditation. And over its three-year life so far, it's, it's grown, evolved, and started to expand into this, this kind of catchphrase I'm using of a full-spectrum spirituality, whereby I want to have conversations and offer reflections on the shadow elements of being, the, the bits of ourselves that we tend to dissociate from or repress or bury, the light aspects of our being, this is the, the, the bright, uh, very shiny qualities of experience and being that we tend to emphasize in the spiritual path of love, compassion, generosity, clarity. And uh, in general, the podcast is now looking at ways to, in, to integrate, to, to harmonize these, these dimensions so that we don't have a bifurcated or a dissociated or a split approach to practice, that we're really learning to work with everything that we are and, and to integrate everything that we are within everything that is. So it's it's really it's remarkable to me that 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 we've gotten to this point that we're at the hundredth episode. I never would have imagined that uh, when I began the podcast that what it would look like three years out. But I'm, I have to say I'm very not in a self congratulatory way, but I'm very just pleased with the way it's it's, it's moving, um, and I'm very grateful for your listenership. It's really it's your continued support in listening and sharing the podcast that has energized me and continues to inspire me on the path. And um, if I reflect on just this year alone, uh, I'd say the this year's guest list um, of people I've had on the podcast sort of outlines the arc of growth and development of the podcast itself. So in the beginning of this year, I released a interview series with Paul Greeley. Paul is the godfather of yin yoga. He's the guy that got me started in yin yoga, and um, many of us that are in practice today are deeply indebted and grateful to his pioneering work around functional alignment and uh, the experience of yin yoga practice. So uh, if you haven't heard that, please go back to some of the archives on my site at joshsummers.net and check out that first interview with Paul Greeley. From Paul, we've had, uh, I've had Locke Kelly, a wonderful meditation teacher on. I had a great conversation with Judd Brewer about uh, the clinging and addictive mind. He's a neuroscientist and psychiatrist looking at how mindfulness can help treat addiction to anything. So that was a really rich conversation I had with Judd. Um, the 
the Professor Emeritus of Yin Yoga, Bernie Clark, came back on to uh, discuss binary thinking in spirituality and practice. And, uh, and recently, I, I released the conversation I had with the psychologist, uh, Dr. Judith Blackstone, on her work integrating embodied consciousness, the healing of trauma, and spiritual awakening. So in total, if I, if I review the arc of these guests and conversations, I, I see, a, in, in some ways, a, a microcosm of the, the podcast's own development starting from yin yoga, the, the narrow, more narrow topic of yin yoga and yoga practice, and, um, and, and now how the, the scope of the, of the conversations on the podcast are, are moving into looking in much broader themes as they relate to the spiritual path. And today's interview uh, is kind of the capstone on that development. And so today's interview is with a Zen priest from Switzerland named Vanya Palmers. And I wanted to have a conversation with someone like Vanya for a while. Um, in today's conversation, we look at the integration of psychedelics and spiritual practice. And I wanted to have a, a conversation on this theme with somebody who was deeply practiced in the contemplative world. And, and Vanya comes from a very rich Zen tradition. Um, but he also appreciates the value and role that psychedelics can play in the path or on the path. And, um, and so I wanted to, to, to start to explore that conversation uh, on the podcast with you all. Now, in bringing up uh, the conversation of psychedelics, I need to issue a few caveats. These are, in many countries, in most countries, still illegal substances, regrettably. Um, but uh, clearly, psychedelics are not for everyone. And in this conversation, I don't mean to imply or to insinuate that everybody should explore what psychedelics are like, nor do, do I think that everybody needs to explore these things. Um, all I can say is that for myself, the, uh, these experiences, these psychedelic experiences, were able to open my mind to things about myself and the nature of my own experience and my experience in the world. Uh, I could see things in these states that I just wasn't able to see elsewhere. And, um, it's, and as, as Vanya even says in the interview, in many ways, uh, meditation practice is a great preparation or the meditation it trains you and meditation helps you work with the psychedelic state in a, in, a, in a very good way. But I also do want to acknowledge that um, this topic is somewhat controversial and there are many people in the meditative world that that uh, look down upon the integration of psychedelics in practice. They see it, see the psychedelic as a crutch or a detour or a dead end. Um, personally, I am not one of those people. I, again, have found the integration to be one of tremendous, tremendously valuable fruit and insight. Um, but it's not for everybody. And, and please hear me when I say it, it doesn't need to be for everybody. The other thing I will say is that uh, as anyone in the psychedelic world uh, with a sense of integrity will say, is that there, there does need to be a few caveats mentioned, particularly around using these substances in the proper set and setting. And set and setting refer to first the mindset that the person who uh, engages with them goes into the experience with. Um, and 
for my side, I, I, I approach it very much like uh, the, where the psychedelic is a sacrament. It's a sacrament of facilitating a sacred ceremony of sorts. Um, and I've, I've really gone into it with that kind of energy, whether it's by myself or with a designated guide or, or trip sitter um, that's facilitating the experience. So this is not a casual, haphazard, or even um, recreational uh, uh, encounter. This is a very sacred kind of ceremony. And connected to the, the ceremonial aspect of it, uh, the, the setting in which one engages with these substances is also very, very important. And for most people, a, a big important piece of the setting is the presence of a, a, a guide or a sitter, somebody who is just there to make sure that you're safe, that you don't get into any difficulty or trouble, um, that you're able to get to the bathroom if you need to get to it, or if you need a glass of water or something like that. But a, a presence um, of, a, of, of a person staying on ground, sort of ground control, can be very, very helpful and reassuring, um, at least as I found it to be, uh, during the experience. So uh, that could be a, a good friend, a partner that you trust, or it could be more of a person who has developed um, familiarity with guiding these kinds of journeys. So I and also just say here, if, if this conversation is of interest to you, if you're interested in this topic, then I do recommend, if you haven't already, I really recommend reading Michael Pollan's wonderful book called How to Change Your Mind. That book looks at the the experience, the, well, I should say it looks at the history of psychedelics, um, and then uh, Michael Pollan shares very uh, candidly about his own experience with these substances, a whole variety of these, these substances. And then he, he sort of finishes the book looking at the, 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 the research and the science that's coming out around them. And that's where you'll, if you, when you get that far in the book, you'll see the overlap between the neurobiology of a psychedelic state and the, the experience of, of deeper states of meditation and how they're virtually uh, one and the same to the, to the brain. Um, the other thing I'll link to in the show notes is the write-up about the study that Vanya was a part of. So you'll, in the interview here, you'll hear me speaking with him about the, uh, the meditation study where a group of folks were on a silent meditation retreat for about five days, and then I think on the fourth day, half of them received a fairly large dose of psilocybin while the other half received a, a, um, a placebo. And that study looks into both the short-term and long-term effects of that dosage. Fascinating stuff. Um, we'll see in the next five to ten years, I think, that where this 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 line of development is going to go. But I think it it holds great potential for the expansion of consciousness and um, a, a deeper connection with all of life, and hopefully the ongoing healing of our species and our, the place of our species in this world. Anyway, uh, without further ado, I now bring you Vanya Palmers. Today, I am with Vanya Palmers. Vanya, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Well, thank you for inviting me. 
Yeah. So uh, to introduce you, you, you know, I came across you first because you were a guest on a friend's podcast, my friend Alex Dorr, who has a, fun- a, a podcast on functional mushrooms, you know, medicinal mushrooms for like cordyceps and reishi mushroom for health. And he had you on for a conversation about psilocybin and particularly psilocybin, the, the psychedelic mushroom uh, and how it can be used in part of a spiritual path or spiritual practice. And as soon as I heard that, I knew that I wanted to speak to you because this is a topic that I've been increasingly interested in. And, and I, uh, I wanted to speak to somebody who was more coming, not so much from the, the clinical scientific side of the, the, the topic, but more from the deep experiential side on the, on the meditative front, you know, someone with a lot of meditation experience who saw value in the integration. And, and as I listened to you, I thought that you were, you were just that person. And then your connection, um, as people will hear, you have a, an accent, uh, at least my North American friends will hear uh, that you have an accent. So you're, I think, originally Austrian, but now right. reside in Switzerland. Is that correct? Right, right. I was born in Austria, in Vienna, but grew up in Switzerland. And I, that's where I live. And I'm a Swiss citizen. Okay. But in terms of your spiritual background, you are a Zen priest. That's right. Is that right? That's correct. And where did you train or how did you, like, just in terms of your own biography, how did you come to the Dharma? What, I always like to ask people that, you know, what was it, what were, what were the conditions in your life that brought you to, to practice um, way back? Well, that puts us right into the topic of our conversation. Um, uh, I led a, a, a very sheltered and um, uh, nice uh, youth and uh, started my career in the family business. My family has been in textiles for generations. And then uh, a few micrograms of LSD totally uh, turned my world's view upside down, inside out, and uh, I became a classic as did hundreds of thousands of others, a classic dropout. Mm. And um, I stopped. I was still going to university at that point studying. And I had a, what nowadays you would call a startup, quite successful, about 30 people. And and uh, I just, uh, it didn't interest me anymore. And I knew, I didn't know what I wanted, but I knew that that's not what I wanted. Mm. Did it feel like a crisis to you at the time? Both. Uh, at the time, it didn't feel, I mean, yes, crisis, yes. It was very freeing and very confusing. Yeah. Uh, in some ways, you know, we were really thinking we were onto some hot stuff and uh, going to change and save the world. And on the other hand, uh, we were quite confused. <laughs> and I knew it. <laughs> When you say we, are you talking about the, like your, your colleagues and friends that were yeah. involved? In, in yeah, yeah, we called ourselves the Freak Family and uh, <laughs> were a bunch of people that I am still in contact with up to today, actually. <laughs> sure. Was this, what year are we talking? Is this early, early mid-60s? Uh, end of 60s, beginning of 70s. Okay. And then, so how did you come, how did you find yourself coming to Zen? That was, you would say, by chance. <laughs> Maybe had some. Uh, or in Europe already, I was sort of dropping out, and then being a, a yogi, going up to a cabin and living there, quite remote. And and somehow 
the Tassahara bread book, Ed Brown's Tassahara bread book fell, was, fell into my hands. And then when later on I ended up in America and driving on a motorcycle through this, from the East Coast to the West Coast, and then up the Highway 1, somebody mentioned Tassahara. You should go to Tassahara because they meditate a lot. And, and uh, at that point, I remember Tassahara. I have heard Tassahara. I know Tassahara, the Tassahara bread book. And so that probably was the reason I did go there. If I hadn't heard before, I probably would, I don't know. So, and then I ended up there and that's, that was it for the next 10 years. So, so yeah, Tassahara is a, was it a Zen monastery? Yes. Tassahara is the, is the oldest Zen monastery outside of, of Asia. It's uh, Suzuki Roshi founded it in over 50 years ago now. Mm. So, and then, and, and, and you mentioned that this book, they, uh, Ed, is it Ed Brown? I think is his name. Yeah. And that's, yeah. he, he wrote this very famous cookbook. He was one, of, I think the head chef. Exactly. Actually, he comes and teaches here in our center in, in Switzerland at Felsentor every year. Oh. <laughs> Still does cooking classes. That's wonderful. I, I, I can't, it must've been about 10 years ago. He came to Cambridge at one point and I, I heard him for a talk at the Cambridge Insight Center too. And he was <laughs> very, uh, very strong presence. Very, 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 very interesting guy. Um, yeah. So so did you just join the Zen monastery at that time? Well, so, uh, at that point, I was a yogi, all dressed white and long hair and long beard. And uh, I lived in Yogi Bhajan's group for a while. And um, I did a lot of yoga and a lot of meditation already. And then ending up there, at the, it was just at the end of the guest season. And I could only stay a few days and then everybody had to leave and I ended up at the Zen Center of, of the Zen Center of San Francisco and then started practicing there and then went to Green Gulch for about three years. Green Gulch is the farm in uh, Marine County mm -hmm. that belongs to the Zen Center. And, uh, and then I went to Tassahara and I stayed there for something over five years. And, um, yeah, became a monk. The I'm always, you know, I, I, I know this was one, something we were planning to talk about, but I, in the biographical side of it, I always, I, I'm always interested in when people, like practitioners, make a kind of a, a, a lineage change or a lane change in in their their path. Um, and so, you, it sounds like you were on a very serious yogic path, um, in, in more of a, in a sort of a traditional yogic spirituality you know, asana and meditation um and in making your shift i always i'm curious what what was it about that you draw you that drew you to the dharma or the the, the zen dharma as opposed to the the yogic path well from the outside you know if i look at my life at the, if i look at the biography there were sort of dramatic changes like dropping out of university or, or just letting the business uh, run its course and just walking out and then changing from being a yogi with long hair and long beard to a shaved all in white to a shaved head black robe uh, zen person mm. from the inside that was all very totally seamless without any question you know no i was really relieved that when i 
strange things happen, you know. The day before we drove in with the motorcycle to Tassahara, I was with a lady on, on the back of the motorcycle. They stole my bag with soap, with the dope, which I carried with me. Never before had anybody, anything stolen me, anything stolen from me. And in the campground, <laughs> the whole bag with our stuff got stolen. And I was ready for it. It was just right. I was just relieved. That, ah. was it. that was really it. And for the next 20 years, I didn't, short of some green tea, take any substances. I, I was tired of being the, the uh, psychedelic guru that I was sort of traveling and looked like. And uh, that's what I was. Uh, what, 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 I think I misheard you, but what was in the bag that got stolen? My dope, the, the dope. drugs. Okay. Yeah. I <laughs> carried all kinds of things with me. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure which I, I wasn't sure if I heard that word correctly. So, 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 so it sounds like the shift was from a kind of a, um, a substance infused practice of yoga, yes. then and then more of a, a straight, straight and narrow path. Absolutely. in the Zen. Absolutely. And so, so the, the changes were sort of dramatic. Before that, you know, we, we I did a lot of fasting and. As little as possible was my mantra for everything, moving, talking, eating, everything. And then in the sense, in the, you know, you get up early and there's always something to do. You're always busy. You eat about three or four or five times and in between. And and, uh, and it was a total shift. But I was very relieved. Very, it was easy. Mm. Well, I'm also struck by the way you described it as, as kind of a seamless transition where on the outside, the forms may have looked different. But you, you, you felt like there was just a, a seamless continuity. Absolutely, um, I was totally ready for that change. I was so, tired of being a, a psychedelic guru. <laughs> <laughs> were you, so, were you teaching at that time? If you're, if you're calling yourself a psychedelic guru, yeah, I mean that's what people looked at me. You know, the way I just the way I appeared. You know, with the, a beard that went down to my belly and my hair down to my buttocks and. And all dressed up, and, and I mean, teaching yoga and being. <laughs> you know, there's a there was a movie. I, I don't know if you got a chance to see it, but there was a documentary about uh, an American American born Indian man who pretended to go to India, and he he got dressed up as a sadhu when he came back. So when he came back as a as a as a as a uh, sort of a sadhu in costume. I mean, yeah. a, a, a renunciant in costume. He he hired a, a PR person and they moved out somewhere out, uh, I think in the Southwest, maybe Arizona or New Mexico, and and started to teach. Uh, but but really, it was they were he was teaching stuff he had made up that sounded real, um, and 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 to see what what kind of followers he would get. And sure enough, um, he got a, he got a little community and people that were really getting benefit from what he was saying. Um, and and then he finally unmasked himself, and it was an interesting process. The name of the documentary is, is, is um, escaping me at the moment, but you know, I, if when I ask my my Zen teacher, uh, who is dead now, but who was very well trained in you know in a traditional family Zen family, and, so, and if I asked about ceremonies and too clearly, and how do you do this and that, and he said, you know, it's all made up anyway, just. Mm. Do it in a good spirit, you know. Make good effort and then be honest. But it doesn't make it doesn't matter. It doesn't. It's not important whether it's two bells or one bell or three bells or two bows or this. It's all made up anyway. Is it? Yeah. The form, as as you're saying that, I hear the 
it's the formless behind the form. Yeah. You know, so yeah. honor the form, but don't forget the yeah. formless within it. Exactly. Um, exactly. Suzuki Roshi used to say, uh, Hinayana practice with the Mahayana spirit. Of course, that's mm. a little bit arrogant because no, no Theravada calls himself Hinayana. <laughs> that's that's right. how the Mahayana called the others. <laughs> but right there, so that form, you're form a clear form with a very free spirit. Mm. So it, it sounds like psychedelics were were your gateway. And as as I shared before we got on the call, or sort of before we started recording, um, I. I, I have recently come to psychedelics in the last couple of years, primarily inspired by, by two things, actually. One was the publication of Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, which... Uh, that had an amazing impact. Very amazing. Yeah, I think that book is probably, you know, it's like the next canon shot of, of, of uh, the integration of these, of these um, substances with, with spiritual awakening. Um, I and think I was very moved. I was at a conference at Esselin where Michael Poland was, and he was. It was a you know, it was all the old psychedelic, or a lot of them were there. And so he said, and he was. That's I was very impressed by him, by his modesty. He said, you know, I'm sort of now the, I have become sort of like a leading figure, or the uh, you know, like a, how do you call that on a ship, the the, the, the figure captain. That, the the Galerian figure that is in front of the ship. Oh, the yeah, the 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 bow. The, the I, I know what you mean. The the, the figure at the front of the ship that is yeah, the, yeah, the front of right. the bow. And, but you know, I'm really I'm a youngster among you. You have much more experience than I have. Yeah, yeah. So his book, and then and, and um, I was working at a th with a therapist at the time who was re about to retire, but. This therapist, um, whose name was Jack Engler, was was very involved with bringing uh, Theravada insight meditation from India uh, to the West with a lot of the first generation Dharma teachers like Joseph Goldstein and, and Jack Cornfield. And um, and I asked him towards the end of my time with him, I said, "What percentage of first generation Dharma teachers came to the Dharma through the through the doorway of psychedelics?" And without without even uh, missing a beat he just said 100 percent from what he was aware of um well there may I, have been one or the other that hasn't but by and large that's probably true right and and in a way you know if you talk to a hardcore like maybe a hardcore dharma practitioner i see them in in, in both the zen the theravada and even the vajrayana world they will say that you know this integrating or, or including substances mind-altering substances within practice is kind of a, a, a corruption of the practice like there's a, there should be a purity of, of of not taking anything that intoxicates the mind um as, as you see outlined in the fifth precept at least as the way it's, it's codified in, in the in the theravada prep school um and and that's one thing i, I would like to hear you speak about is is you know that how do how would you respond to that kind of voice of skepticism about their inclusion? Well, um, first, I would like to point out that this is a position that some Dharma teachers have, but by the way, not all of them, mm -hmm. and especially the the Western Dharma teachers uh, have uh, a lot of them have a more differentiated view of of these things. So. Um, 
from a formalistic point of view, you know, if you if you if you take the precepts of not of not uh, uh, deluding body or mind or not intoxicating body and mind, um, that is true. And um, I'm not a you know I don't uh, I'm not a scholar, but the scholars tell me that the, the the oldest version of that clearly states that you should not get drunk on alcohol to a degree where you are foolish, something right. like that. It specifically addresses alcohol and not drugs in general, which does seems to have a different name. And it also uh, says not that you should not drink it at all, but it says that you shouldn't drink it in a to a, in a in a in a way that it makes you silly. Mm-hmm. And um, the other thing that is that I say always is that what is explicitly allowed for monks is food, shelter, clothing, and medicine. Mm-hmm. And I see these substances more in the category of medicine. Of course, you can misuse everything, including, you know, you can kill yourself by drinking too much water, for, for, for that matter. But um, it, to me, it's not an intoxication, but it's a, it goes under the, the, the label of medicines. Yeah, you know, again, so in, in interest of full disclosure, the past couple of years, I have been uh, integrating slowly uh, work with with psychedelics and pr- particularly uh, psilocybin, the, the magic mushroom. Um, and I personally will, will say that, you know, on my side, it, it is probably one of the most healing experiences I've ever had, you know, every time I work with it, uh, there's a, there's a new depth of healing that feels like it, um, is facilitated and, and, um, and it, it, it doesn't, it, it all feel in, like what, what you're describing, like an intoxicating thing. It feels very much like a medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I have a, I have a friend who's a physician in the, in the UK and he thinks mushrooms, magic mushrooms are probably the most powerful medicine on the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, I just had about uh, two weeks ago uh, a, a woman approached me, a, a mature woman, th- three grown-up children, an MD, um, has been practicing Zen for 25 years, lives in Switzerland, Indian-born. Um, and she she approached me, I guess she has heard through the study, she wanted definitely to try something. She had wanted to have an experience. And so she actually asked her teacher, who is living in America, I won't mention his name, but he's known. So he said, he said he didn't say no, that she couldn't do it, but he said, we don't need that. We don't need crutches. Right. Well, ideally, we don't need crutches. That's true. But still, you know, we, we don't need sandals. We don't need sashins. We don't need, but still, we need it. We do it. You know, we have to do something. And of course, ultimately, we don't need any temple. Every space is perfect, and you don't do, have to do anything if you if you're there, if you're really present. And you know, Krishnamurti and many have said it and lived it, in, and hopefully. Uh, but the rest of us do need help. Do need crutches. Do need uh, scaffolding that holds us together a little bit. Right, right. The forms that hold hold the practice and and. Yeah, crutching, calling it a crutch, I think, is as as actually a, a disparagement of of the of what they do. <laughs> you know, 
Um, it's not that it just gets you ambulatory so that you can walk around while your foot's healing or your legs broken. It, it, there's something else that there where it, it's as, as I think Michael Pollan refers to it, it's, it's a, it's a bit of a sacrament. It's a sacrament and initiation into a dimension of being a dimension of consciousness that, um, you can get to, you know, the way I've heard it described is I think Sam Harris, a, a podcaster describes it, um, like this, he says, you can practice meditation for 20 or 30 years. And after a lot of practice, you might be fortunate enough to have a deep experience of, of the awakened mind, which for, for lack of a better phrase, we'll call it that. Um, but if you use a psychedelic in the right setting in the right context, um, at the right dose, you can more or less be guaranteed a taste of that experience right off the bat. Um, and you know, it sounds like you had, you, you had that experience in spades, you know, you had it a lot before you came to your Zen practice. Absolutely. Um, and so I would be curious if you could talk about, cause I'm, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to get to is I didn't have that experience when I came to meditation. Mm -hmm. I did not. And, um, for a long time, you know, for the first 20 years of my formal sitting practice, I was having experiences that were, in a way, they, they felt profound, but I didn't know exactly what they were, and I, I didn't even have, you know, I was in systems where the, the conversations with the teachers weren't such that they would confirm or deny anything. They would just sort of, you know, nod, say, oh, keep doing that, or keep going along with that. That sounds good. Keep practicing. But no one would ever clearly say anything about what was happening. Mm. And... Um, I think it was after my first or second trip with psychedelics that it occurred to me that my meditation practice up until the point of taking the, the, the mushroom was like being in a room where the lights were very dim or off. Like the, the, I, the, so I was in the, sitting in this room for 20 years where I, I could feel my way around the room and I could touch everything, but I couldn't see it, if you know what I mean. And you know, I, I got very familiar with the, with the shape, the texture, how things felt. And I, I felt or, oriented in the room, um, but when with the mushroom with the psychedelic, it, it was though the the lights the light switch got flipped on, and suddenly everything I was feeling had this this dimension of clarity, and and it's hard to convey, but it also felt like I saw the relationship between everything that I was feeling in the room. Finally, I could see how it all held together in, in a way that just wasn't possible um, without that experience. Mm. So, you know, I guess before I even jump in further, I should say one thing that, you know, in this conversation about psychedelics that we, I think we both share a deep respect for what they have and that we would recommend that people don't casually, um, you know, just jump into it without taking into certain things into consideration, like proper set and setting. And, and, and I, I want to hear what you have to say about that. But did you find because of your, your yogic and psychedelic experience prior to going to Zen, did you find that your experience was different from those around you that didn't have that experience or background? Well, you... remember most of those guys or girls in those days had the experience. Oh, they did. <laughs> but interesting enough, we didn't talk about it. I mean, at least in my, that's my memory. David Chadwick had just told me totally different. I don't know if you know, David, he, that cuke uh, 
Yeah, he he's, wrote the, the crooked he, cucumber, right? He, he, we had a telephone conversation not too long ago, and I said to him, you know, we never talked about, uh, we all had this experience, we never talked. He said, well, that's not his experience. He remembers a meeting where, you know, somebody said, how many of you had psychedelics? Basically, everybody raised their hand. And and then even Reb Anderson, who is now, I, I know he had some experience, but apparently David said, then you know the, how many times a dozen yes 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 and Ray was the one who sort of raised his hand till the end with the many many experiences I don't think I, that's not my experience my remembrance but um, you know it, when people tell me that substances do not go so well with meditation for sure Meditation is very helpful in psychedelics. The, the ability to be, able, to be able to sit through this sort of confusing and overwhelming and emotions and all that. And if you have sat for a few years, that is very, very helpful. And that's one of the things I saw in our study that we did, which, you know, is in many ways similar to what, like, they do at the John Hopkins University, mm -hmm. Roland Griffith and his, his group. Um, you know, these long-time meditators, they had no negative, like, you know, in the, in the upper doses in that famous important study that they did at John Hopkins where they did dose-related mystical experiences in the upper those people who like 25 and 30 uh, milligrams of psilocybin, they had, uh, you know, uh, the breakthrough experiences, but about a third of them had also, uh, they reported, uh, con you know, some kind of confusion or fear that went away. Nobody had any lasting problem, but at least that's what they reported. That's what they experienced. Well, in our group, it's almost embarrassing, unscientifically, not a single person reported any kind of uh, major confusion or fear. Or, and we were in the higher doses, and we have 40 people, and, uh, and they were all experienced sitters, of course. Yeah, you know, I, I definitely, there's two things there. There's, there's your, the study that you were involved in that I want to open up and talk about. Um, but maybe before we come to the study, um, more, to step back and just talk about how you see what you just said around meditation preparing someone to be able to to to, to safely um, experience a psychedelic trip, and then and then on the other side, how does the psychedelic trip facilitate a meditative path or meditative um, awakening? Uh, when I first started, I would say I, I definitely appreciated your first statement there though that the that the meditation does prepare one for the kind of what i would refer to as the perceptual breakdown of, of our conventional world it's um, powerful stuff i mean we should, we should, we should, we, should uh, we have to mention that to your listeners it's very powerful stuff and it has to be approached with the utmost respect right and uh and uh and uh with right. the with the presence of a, a guide or somebody who is experienced, highly recommended. Yeah, yeah. So the, the two things that get mentioned all the time are set and setting. So the mindset that the individual goes with, in with and getting clarity around 
what their That's what I is. call, you know, in Buddhism, we have the three jewels, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. Mm -hmm. Well, the three jewels of the psychedelic journey are sacrament, set, and setting. You know, yeah. what, what you take, I mean, there are, different, there, are, there are some different substances. The dosage is very important of what you do, mm -hmm. you know, how it, how it works. So the sacrament, the, the substance, and then set and setting. Those are the three things that have to be paid attention to. And if you ever hear of, a, of problems that arise, for sure, one of these three or all three of them have been grossly uh, uh, mis, uh, not, not taken Dis seriously. Disregarded, not, not taken Disregarded. seriously enough. Yeah, yeah. Um, right. And I, I, would, I would agree with that. There, there needs to be a certain respect for the, for the whole process. Um, but done safely, you know, done with all those things in consideration, um, my sense is that it's a, it's a very safe experience. Yes. Um, now, yes. mushrooms are friendly beings, actually. I find. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so I, I did when I first started. I really did feel like, particularly when I there was what I call the in the beginning of a journey. There's kind of a choppy phase, meaning that when per, the normal perception starts to break down, um, you know, it can feel very disorienting and confusing for a period of time. But I remember hearing a voice in my head that said. Oh, your sitting is finally has finally matured to prepare you to tolerate this. You know, it was like it was a sense of a confidence in me through the refuge and the and the, and the Buddha really that and, and awareness that, that I, I knew my awareness could hold whatever the hell was going to go on. Um, but there, I guess the, the thing I'm circling around with with wanting to talk to you about is what. What experience is, what experience comes from the, the experience of the journey that you feel really supports the development of an individual's spiritual awakening or path? Like, what can you, how would you describe that? Um, or, or, or what have you seen people describe? Well, <clears throat> Um, it is my experience in just in regular Zen. We do not talk very often, at least in the, the, the scene I am in, the lineage I am in. We do not talk about enlightenment very often. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and um, even though it's sort of understood that it's important, but also, of course, be, you don't, if you talk about it, you immediately know who had it, who didn't have it. It, it sort of divides and it makes, in some ways, it's the fulfillment of life. It's the mm. sort of the stamp of approval. That's it. And, uh, and of course, you don't need it, but it's sort of the culmination of, of our, of our, of our, um, of our journey here. On yeah. This. I, I agree with you that the language can be problematic. And, and I, I find lately I've been uh, more sympathetic to the word awakening, yeah. to, the, to the word enlightenment. Enlightenment implies a kind of discrete, specific moment in time where something big, important happens and, and everything's different thereafter. Awakening to me implies an, an ongoing journey, an ongoing process. But it's um, like so for example with the, with the with something like a, a big meditation experience or a, or, a, or a psychedelic trip 
you can have an insight, an awakening to a dimension or awakening to the process itself and how awakening is. And you know that you're now part of that process, but you know that it keeps going on and on. So it doesn't become this egoic attainment that you then define yourself by. It's yes. more just a, a, like a river that you're now in and enjoying the flow of. Yes. Um, yes. My personal experience is that there are moments of awakening. There are moments of awakening. There's no question. There is not such a thing as an awakened being as mm. I have experienced it. I have heard and read about them, and I believe maybe some people like Ramana Maharshi or so. Uh, but those that I met in this life, the ones that came closest to, to, to it, they were the first to deny and say immediately, no, no, I fall back and I, you know, I, have, and I get angry at my wife and, 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 and so forth. So yeah. I think we all have moments, but we all fall back. The, I think the... the, the, the um, natural uh, center of gravity for our human life is this dualistic, more or less uh, problematic world that we that is easier to handle if we have an experience of the oneness and that we, and we also have access to this oneness to this. But we have to come back to live our lives and be uh, dualistic beings. And so <clears throat> I think the it's it's wonderful and important to have a deep experience. I would, and uh, as I said, the, the Zen tradition, if anything, plays it down. But it's important. But then it's the, the challenge is to and that the, to have to make the step from an experience to from a spiritual experience to a spiritual life. Mm -hmm. You have to try to live your life in the spirit of in what you have seen, what you have. And that's, that's the real, they say real practice begins with awakening. Yeah. You know, um, I, I've been thinking about this too in a slightly different language, but in, in context with the Buddhist teaching on the four noble truths, um, which is some, some claim that is an initial teaching um, upon his own awakening. But in the formulation of that of that teaching, the four noble truths, the really the awakening is the third truth or the third step. Meaning, you you, you encounter dukkha, you understand the origin of dukkha through tana or, or a craving, and when the craving is released, the grasping is released. There's there's the third truth, the, the cessation of suffering. Um, but that's the third. It's not the fourth. The fourth is the path, uh, which is often presented as the path from which you then. You, you follow the path to realize the third, but there's many folks that, like Stephen Batchelor for one, who, who, who suggests that, in fact, as you just said, the path begins with awakening, meaning you know, it's, it's the path of integration from the, the deep connection of the experience of, of oneness or, or unity. Um, and that's, that's just something that I, I think speaks to the ongoing process, that there's a, a, a constant re, or refinement of, of the path from from a from the clear position of what it's like to be intimately interdependent or interconnected um, at the level of non-dual consciousness. Um, you so know, clearly, the goal is to have a have an awakened life to yeah. attempt to or to uh, to to. Uh, how we live is what what counts really. Our mm -hmm. life, you know. So maybe let's let's talk about the study you were involved in um, because that that that's definitely picked up. My ears got, got very curious about that. You were 
uh, part of a study in in Zurich or outside Zurich with a, well, a group of um, we have this meditation center it's called Felsentor it's nicely very nicely located in the in the in, in the in the Alps in the mountains it's quite remote above a lake high above a lake very remote you cannot drive there with a car you have to actually walk there mm. and um so I have this uh, friend, Franz Vollenweider, who is a professor, who is the leading professor for research uh, uh, in, at the University of Zurich, at the psychiatric clinic of the University of Zurich. And he has been, he has been doing uh, uh, clinical tests with psilocybin for 25 years. One of the very few people, while it was still basically all illegal everywhere in Switzerland, we have a little bit of special, uh, historically a special position. And, and they were, there's a group of doctors that were allowed to do some research all along, even though it was internationally banned. So I approached him and asked him if he thought it would be possible to do a meditation retreat with psilocybin officially legally in that uh, remote center because uh, i'm convinced that doing it at the clinic is not an ideal <laughs> setting mm. even though they have a nice room and so you're still in a hospital and you i mean you feel that in, on that in that state especially you know mm -hmm. and to be out in nature and to be in a in a setting where there is like so it took about five years to get permission to do that. I mean, we worked on it pretty hard. And then, so we were able to do it. Uh, it was his first group session, was his first session outside of the university, of the hospital uh, environment. And we sort of almost built up a little clinic up there because we really wanted to be sure that nothing goes wrong. And, you know, God forbid, somebody has a heart attack, which you can have a heart attack anytime, anywhere. Uh, that we have the right way of treating it. So everything went fine, and uh, uh, we put them into the MRI before and after at the clinic, and then we. How many? And how many people are you talking about? Would you say forty? Forty people. Was it forty? Forty. Yeah. So forty, 40 and, and they were and they were all long-term meditators. So the ideal participant were long-term meditators with zero experience in psychedelics. Mm. Well, we didn't find 40 of those who were willing to do that, but we found about 20 of those and 20 with also long-term experience, but with some experience with psychedelics, either it's a long time ago or they do it very seldom. So, you know, that's some experience, but not, not a lot and not regular users, put it that way. Mm -hmm. and, 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 then, uh, and so describe for me the, 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 the how the, the, the experiment unfolded. They, they, well, did we, everyone go we into a retreat? A more or less, we did a more or less traditional Zen Sashin, which is an intensive period of sitting, for, usually for seven days. We did it for five days. And on the fourth day, half of the participants got placebo and half of them got psilocybin. They got about, uh, well, if you're about, it got by kilos, I think 0.315 per kilo it's about it's about 25 um, milligrams for a person with uh, 70 kilos or so 25 milligrams I'm to, huh? yeah what, I, i'm i'm familiar with taking it measuring it in grams 
you know, and, and Jed, Jed McKenna, I think famously said that five grams is the hero's journey. <laughs> well, that depends a lot on what mushroom you take. If you take five grams of Similanciata, it's a very high dose. If you take Cubanensis, it's, uh, it's a high dose. And so it, the mushrooms are different, you know, mm -hmm. they have yeah. different. But we, of course, take for scientific purposes, we have, uh, um, we have synthetic, synthetic psilocybin. So that we have, uh, you know, real accurate. So, yeah. so were people taking the synthetic on the sashin? Yes. Okay. Um, I'm curious. It's actually, huh? the, the the psilocybin actually comes from the laboratory of Albert Hoffman. Still, it's quite old. They mm. wanted to throw it away, and then Franz said, "No, no, wait a second. And we had about half a kilo, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and tested it on it, it all regards, and it's all still very good and very potent. So. You know, uh, well, you mentioned Albert Hoffman, who, of course, is the famous Swiss chemist for discovering LSD. Um, it, on the retreat, I think I actually saw footage, like film footage. A, a friend of a friend, I think, was involved in, in making a documentary about this study. Mm. And I, I, I think I saw the trailer, the beginning of this film. Um, and so correct me if I'm wrong, but it... it I remember seeing people sitting in like the formal meditation hall, looking very serene and, and, and formal. And um, the sacrament, the, the 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 substance being whether it's the the the, um, the 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 placebo or the real thing being handed out. Um, but it, it was that the way it went. Was was it was a very formal? Uh, yeah, process? yeah it's, a, it's a very formal surrounding and. And some of the uh, old timers, you know, they really just sat through the whole thing as if nothing had happened. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, we kept going the same like rhythm that we do 30 minutes sitting, then a bell and then 10 minutes walking meditation, then go back to your seat and then sitting for again for half an hour and then walking again for 10 minutes. We kept that schedule up and, you know, Especially the placebo people, of course, were just doing that. And then, but a, f a number of the active people, you had to look very closely to see that maybe they weren't quite as uh, uh, sure in their steps and yeah. took a little more balance to get up. But basically, they followed. But also, others, another guy, one in particular, I remember after about in, in take 20 minutes later, he was flat. And he couldn't move. I mean, mm -hmm. for the next several hours, he could not possibly get up. And he was totally out of it, moaning and 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 and, and ecstatic. And talking to him afterwards, actually, we carried him out after about 20 minutes so that there's some quiet in the room. And uh, But he was totally ecstatic. It was very important for him to be able to express himself as a sort of introvert, and he felt supported by the group, and he felt very happy that he was part of it. And and and, but no way he could have sat or you know anything like right, most right. of us were. Most of them were sort of in between. You know, some they had to lay down maybe for half an hour somewhere, and then they sat up again. It was was okay to do anything, of course, and. Uh, and then we had to take blood pressure every now and then, and 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 and, and some people 
We are talking now about a follow-up. It's five years ago that we did it, actually. And actually, that film, will it, it never, for other reasons, it never got finished. But the material is still around. And actually, some people just now picked it up again and want to do something with it. Um, and we are talking about a follow-up study to do. And uh, so I asked all the participants what they thought and what... And, uh, you know, I basically I wanted to know from them did it now five years is a long time and uh, looking back does did it have any influence on your practice on your life and uh, does it or was it just an interesting experience and and most everybody wants to follow up making a be part of the follow-up study and most of them said that it had a positive lasting some very much so some you know so that after two or three years it sort of wore off again they it would have been nice to maybe do a booster session after three four years and but some people like i remember one lady she you know was she has been sitting for a long time she stopped sewing her okasa the buddhist robe about eight years ago, well, she started again sewing and she finished sewing and she became a priest and she got renewed in her enthusiasm for practice. For as you know, you sit for years and years, it gets sort of you, know, you get tired a little bit and you get gets a little stale, it can get a little stale, exactly. right? And you get a new. <sighs> <laughs> were, so, were the participants in the study were they direct students of yours? Some were, some were, I would say <laughs> about half of them I knew personally that were, and they come out of the Zen group, but some were Ripassana people and some were um, uh, Vajrayana, Tibetan yeah. uh, people. I think the reason I'm asking is, you know, I'm interested to hear what the outcome of the study was, what, what markers they tested and what they observed after the after the experience but then i'm also curious about if whether you saw changes that you know wouldn't be part of the study but you saw changes in your students and you don't have to necessarily obviously name specific people but <laughs> things that you as the teacher could sort of feel uh that were different or had shifted um so maybe start with the study what, what were the outcomes of that study that, in terms of the experiences people had um you know there's a scientific paper written on it and that can be looked up in the internet i'll, uh, I'll link to that in the show notes for listeners they'll be able to link find okay. it in the show notes and for at the beginning i still tried to sort of uh follow what they were doing and at some point i just gave up it's too complicated i don't understand it really so i had totally my personal interest was totally different much simpler I just uh, I wanted to ask my fellow practitioners what they thought about it, and I wanted to be able to do it, and then to be able to publicly speak about it. So, the the very fact that it was possible to hold a study like that was for me actually already uh, a great, you know. The so you you know you do it for you do it for medical reasons. You get it will probably be approved for depression and for you know for uh, uh, traumatized people and for addiction and so forth which is very good and very helpful and that's the way to do it of course but really 
ultimately these substances are way beyond that they are they are for they're for the human consciousness i mean they are for the betterment of the of the well let's put it that way. yeah i think i was maybe michael pollan borrowed that phrase from somebody but the idea of supporting the flourishing of otherwise normal healthy humans <laughs> you know that it, it doesn't necessarily yeah. I mean, yeah. I, and, I, and, and that's part of the reason I wanted to talk to you is because as the, as the research continues to be done, there's a way that it, to me, it seems like there will be a way that it will be therapized. You know, it will be put into a context of offering therapy for say PTSD or, or depression or addiction. Or, and it's wonderful for all of those things. My concern though, is that uh, I, I don't want I don't want the uh, the substance to be constrained solely or exclusively to therapeutic aims. Yeah. That there's that there is this. Uh, <laughs> I, would, I would I would I would tell I would say to you don't worry too much because these substances are so powerful that they will they have the power to go beyond that. You may you know, you may take them for antidepressive or as a addiction or something. But then, all of a sudden, you have a deep spiritual awakening. And that totally puts every box, puts you out of every box. That you, It doesn't matter under which pre-context you took it, because you know you wanted this or that, and then you are there. And then that has its own power that I'm not worried at all that it can be, you know, it's like, you know, can you use meditation for being a better soldier or, 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 or being a more efficient uh, killer, basically. Hmm. Uh, and people worry about that. And, 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 but my feeling is that these substances have the power to correct these things. Yeah. So, what did, I guess, what did you see happen or what did you hear happening to what, what were the reports from people on in that study? Well, you can say, you know, and that's scientifically, uh, uh, that's part of the study very clearly, you know, that people are more interested in, in uh, things like social justice. Mm -hmm. They are more empathetic. They are more, uh, interested in group activities, uh, so th that can be measured nicely. And even then, three and six months afterwards, there was still uh, more uh, well, all these good qualities that we look for, and uh, that is very clearly and nicely shown in that in that study. Um, I found that the people that took it were at least for a while, more motivated. They came to the practice, to the regular practice more regularly, to the, you know, normal daily practice. Uh, and, uh, yeah, felt by and large just more interested in life again, more. These were, a lot of them were not youngsters anymore. I mean, a lot of them, I don't know what the average age was, but uh, I think I would say most of them were 50 and above. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, there was a clearly renewed interest in life and 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 uh, uh, a more optimistic outlook. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
you know, I've been trying, if this sounds too analytical, we can, I can move on to another question, but um, I have this, I have this curiosity around what is it about the trip experience? What about the journey that, that, that fits into the intentions and the process that one engages with in a Dharma life? Um, and, and, and so there's, there's two big, two big themes that I see being very relevant. I'm sure there are many more, but one is that, uh, as we mentioned, almost as a guarantee of the psychedelic experience, if the conditions and the doses are set correctly, is the experience of unity, um, mm-hmm. a non-dual, a direct non-dual taste. And, and I think that, that in itself will fundamentally shift how someone sees themselves. Exactly. Um, the other side of that connected to the unity is the topic of say what Carl Jung would describe as the shadow in that, uh, when, let me see if I can say this or or walk through this, my sense, and this is just an experiential sense of it is that our normal sense of self, we can call it the, just loosely call it the ego. Uh, If I, if I misuse that term, you can correct me, but um, the ego is sort of a, in one ways, it's an organizing dynamic. It's an organizing process for the individual. And in organizing and, and, and shaping one's experience, it, the ego tends to filter out aspects of oneself that it doesn't like to see. So there's the persona, the, the stuff we project out that we imagine ourselves to be and want ourselves to be. And then there's the shadow stuff that we have repressed or buried or denied that we don't so, see so clearly. And in many ways, I think from in my own practice, I see that second aspect of it as being just as important as the first, meaning I see the opening to my own shadow as being as significant as the experience of non-dual awareness. Um, because it, it, it's, it's, it's in the shadow that I've seen, I start to see the, the patterns and the parts of me that perpetuate unskillful or, or problematic behavior or, or engagement that, that, that lead to more gen, lead to the generation of suffering for myself or others. So it seems like those two sides of, of the experience have been from on my end, incredibly and helpful in terms of uh, understanding myself and my relationship to the path. Um, and I don't know if like what your response to that is, if you see other elements being pl- at play there or, if you've seen similar things play out in, with your students. Well, I think that's the, you describe it very nicely. And those, that covers those basic two things, you know, the positive and the negative of the shadow and the light. And, um, and yes, uh, you know, as, in, <laughs> as often in life, generally, the more difficult rides are so very often the more helpful ones. Or, the, you know, you get, you have... In um, in my life, if I look back, where I grew most was usually in difficult times, when everything yeah. sort of flows in along nicely. Well, I prefer that, and I will go for that anytime I can. But but very often, the difficult times when I had a crisis were the ones where I, looking back now, that uh, I really looked deeper and I, uh, I I did some growing and some. So it's, uh, I think, as you put it correctly, the the, the to 
to see our shadow and to, to first about to see it at all and then to accept it and see it as a important integral part of our being that we can only be good if we also are bad you know that's <laughs> the Taoist yeah <laughs> light doesn't make any sense without the concept of dark right and as you, as you're as I'm re reflecting through this um I guess one of the reasons I want to mention this is because I experienced many people and I know my, I myself uh, had this view that with practice, and this is a very simplistic notion of practice, but I had this view that with practice, things would simply get better, better, and better. That there would be a, a yellow brick road of, of improvement on all metrics in my life. And that Will we reach the point where things are just perfectly running smooth. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, and so, in the context of, of, of experimenting with psilocybin, you know, I'm, I can say that as beautiful and as profound and as hugely transformational as those experiences were they seem to also usher in like after maybe a week, month, couple months later, there would be this uncovering of some really difficult energy, problematic mm. dynamic in me uh, that would come to light that would seem like, you know, to, from the outside, someone could look at me and say, like a therapist could say, Oh, Clearly, he's 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 falling into the ditch, or you know, he's he's backsliding. He's making this 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 trip didn't support it. It didn't help him. He's getting worse, and yet, it's through working with that material that gets that gets revealed that I actually feel much wholer, more complete, um, and integrated. Mm. Uh, but there is this. It's like a there's these mini dark nights that I feel like I've gone through afterwards and i and i the, the few people that i my colleagues that have used these substances too seem to report on similar things and i i don't know if that gets has been discussed at all in the literature or if it's in the the any of the experiences that you've observed in your students or the people in the study but does has that played out at all on, on from what you've seen yeah, yeah. and <laughs> i mean life is so interesting and also exactly the opposite is uh, it comes to mind, you know, we I remember a woman, we did, a, we do every now and then uh, what we call Dharma Waska, mm -hmm. ayahuasca for Dharma people, Buddhists that especially uh, invited Buddhists, we do ayahuasca. And there was this one lady who had no experience before, also in her 70s, grandmother, uh, some PhD. She drank it. And she had a miserable time. She was just throwing up and miserable and miserable. And then the, the, the shaman, we did it two nights in a row, said, yes, yes, he also first night was very terrible and encouraged her to drink the second night. And she drank the second night and it was even worse. I mean, she... And then the next day I brought her, she was from Italy, I brought her to the train station. She, we had a nice conversation and... Uh, it was really difficult for her, uh, miserable from beginning to end. About 10 days later, she, I get an email from her and saying, you know, that it was miserable those two nights, but her life has totally transformed. Mm. She feels 
things have changed. Her relationship with her children has changed. She feels a profound change in her being. And she said, if you ever do it again, let me know. <laughs> Before, So I think both is possible. You can have a wonderful experience and then maybe a month, two, three later, you fall into some kind of, which may have had a connection with what you experienced. Yeah. Or you may have a miserable experience and somehow something gets adjusted or tuned or uh, and, and you know no, it, I think everyone is a, is a little bit different. You cannot <laughs> right say that it's the same for everybody. So, but and that was my sort of question to my peers, to my fellow longtime sitters. You know, is this an ex is this a helpful experience for you? And all of them, forty of them, said yes. It's embarrassing, uh, embarrassingly unscientific mm -hmm. in no. various ways. And some, are, you know, are very uh, eloquent about it and some a little bit more and some a little bit less. But all of them, without exception, said, yes, this was a, for my practice, this was a, a very helpful experience. Well, who else is to say that those people themselves, they're grown up people that sort of know what they and how they explain it and how they, that's, you know, everybody can talk about it differently, but clearly, clearly these are people who uh, are experienced at looking at their lives and at their mind. And, 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 uh, yeah. How much, so it sounds to me like you would recommend that if someone were interested in this kind of experience, that they should, that it would be a good idea to have a few years or at least some period of time of meditation background, meditation, a, a, a sort of steady meditation practice uh, beforehand. That would be helpful, but you cannot ask that for everybody. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's absolutely necessary. I think you can. I think you can have an, an, a helpful and, and useful and, and, and uh, experience without becoming a serious meditator. Mm -hmm. You can have other practices. You know, people have, I mean, they do art. They do all kinds of things. They do yoga. They do yeah. sports and can, that you can do in a very uh, spiritual way or in a very concentrated way. And, and that is also possible. You, you, one question that's coming up is is um, your own experience with this. I mean, you. It sounds like when you entered the Zen monastery, you kind of put the bag of dope aside. You let <laughs> that that got stolen, and you didn't, it seems like you turned away from it for a while. Yeah. Have you gone back at all? Have you have you experienced a journey again? Um, yeah, about almost thirty years later. Mm -hmm. I mean, I knew all along. Sooner or later, I have to go back and look at it. It was so important in my life, and. Uh, and uh, I knew that it took a lot for uh, took years before me finding the right setting that it worked, and then I took LSD again, and uh, and I went into clearly with the question, you know, is that something that maybe could be integrated in uh, in the in the training that we do with people that we offer? Could it be part of our uh, of our practice? And that. I think that speaks to part of the, this, the, the mindset that you go into it with. And this is something that I have done as well, which is to go in with a specific question, you know, yeah. a really, a really a heartfelt, sincere intention around, that helps. around the experience. Helps. Um, and 
what kind of what kind of information or, or, or understanding did you come to from your question around integrating? Yeah, yeah. So the, with Dharma, if the answer clearly was yes, you know, and it was it was clearly quite different from what I remembered. I mean, thirty years older. And having had a life and, uh, and having had a lot of sitting meditation, it was clearly different. It wasn't as overwhelming as I had it in mm -hmm. <laughs> And uh, Did it feel familiar? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And uh, I took 300 mic of LSD, so that's a good dose. And uh, um, Did you yeah. experience all, you know, alterations in your perception of course <laughs> well no I, I say that you probably know where I'm going with this but there's yeah yeah the, the, I'm, I'm, I'm not I'm not a Baba or <laughs> Baba Neem Karoli Baba uh, Ram Dass's teacher who apparently gave I have one friend of that was close to Trungpa Trungpa took in the presence of other people uh, quite a high dose and didn't seem to react too much to it mm -hmm. yeah so the, these these apparently high level uh, exactly. realized oh, no, beings. I'm, I'm not on i'm not in that category at all <laughs> i had strong 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 uh, alternation of, of perception so i mean this may be uh uh i don't know what kind of question where we classify this type of question but it does i do, I do want to ask it which is if you had if you were able to design the, an integrated spiritual practice around, you know, formal Dharma sitting and, and study and, and integration of, of a psychedelic experience. Do you have a sense of what that might look like? Well, we are working in that direction, really. It, it, uh, you know, we are, we are learning, you know, and like one of the things that we will try to change in the in the in, in the second round if we, uh, we are working towards that now you know that people i would like to integrate more outside the people that we actually go outside and sit in the with the trees and 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 uh, that seems to be a very healing and helpful uh, uh, nature already albert hoffman pointed out nature is the best teacher and it's a and also <clears throat> that we don't have to go down right away to go into the MRI. Into the two, so we need another two days afterwards to integrate. That mm. is one of the things that we have had. If you do scientific uh, research, you always have to make compromises, you know. That is, uh, the, but uh, if, we, if we move into the more idea, what we really want to do is... Uh, is uh, uh, yeah, we we de we develop a, a culture where that how, how this could be, how this could happen, or how this. Uh, and we yeah, I mean, I'm 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 aware of like a maybe a handful or a small handful of teachers like yourself that are offering. I mean, do you offer retreats now where the, this is part of the the the? No. the, the At thousand four, we only do totally legal things. Okay. And uh, and that's only possible now in the in the context of a study. Yeah, yeah. We have in Switzerland, we have what we call compassionate use. So, you know, some a handful of, 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 of MDs, of psychiatrists, can legally give them uh, LSD and everything else. But that's 
very, you can only do it one person at a time and you can only do it for, uh, you know, medical reasons. Mm -hmm. So, but we are working on trying to develop a, a, a style and the culture that we can do it in our uh, Zen Zen uh, forms and, and, and tradition. Yeah, no, I, I know. Of, I think I know a few uh, insight teachers that are offering uh, psychedelic, either psilocybin or ayahuasca experiences on a retreat. There, and they're doing them in countries outside the United States where it's, they don't run into the, yeah, the, yeah, issue, the legal issues. Um, and I, I, I'm sure it's difficult to answer this for the in, for someone practicing more on their own, which is what I've been doing more, which I haven't done it in a group setting. I've, I've just done it on my, in my, my own, my own home practice space. Um, but do you have any I, thoughts around that? Like if someone were, were a solo practitioner and, and wanting to incorporate this, do you have, do you have thoughts around what that would look like? Well, I really do think groups are very supportive. I mean, um, and and also in the even in the in the in the even in the um, therapeutic settings, we are now moving towards in Switzerland. With, I'm in part of that group of doctors that does that. We are moving into the direction of doing group sessions. Not only it's it's also more efficient, of course. You know, if you for one person you have two people for ten hours, it's getting very expensive. Anything, and it's uh, it's more efficient to do five or six people at the same time. But quite beyond that, the experience that they have if there are other people around also uh, traveling is is just very supportive. It's very helpful. We found that that it's. A group session is is preferable to single sessions. Mm -hmm. By in general, spe general speaking, them there may be exceptions, but um, uh, so I I think it's a good idea to well, if you have your first experience, you you have, you have to look. It's it's because it's all illegal. Of course, it's all a little bit complicated. But in, in the liberal uh, uh, world that we live in, in California or, or Central Europe. It's not if you're determined to find it, you will find somebody. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, we are dealing with the, the, the legality issue now. So everyone has to find their own sort of ways of <laughs> coming to this if they're interested. Um, and I just want to mention my own experience, which is that I've, I've done both guided and unguided uh, journeys. And um, when I do it on my own, there is always this, background fear that if I take this now, I'm going to slip into something that I'm never going to come out of <laughs> again, like I'm going to be irrevocably changed. And there's, there's sort of this feeling that, uh, or fear around that, um, that doesn't feel necessarily all that helpful. And when I've had the presence of somebody else, like a friend or a guide there, there's just none of that fear present. It just, it, there's a sense of, um, I'm very safe. And, and that, that, that allows me to let go into the experience with, with greater ease so um, I do think I think initially, at least initially, there's a there's a, a real case to be made for a, 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 the, the the presence of a sitter or a guide or a friend that can um, be there and, and just help help facilitate the process. Well, I know several groups in Switzerland, several groups that have you know been doing it for years, sometimes decades, 
and they don't have a, a, a guide or anything. There's just a group mm-hmm. that know each other, and they can take on a newcomer. Yeah, and nobody nobody guides the sessions, but there's a common understanding, and there's some basic rules that you don't leave the the, the premises, and you know you don't. Of course, not aggression and so forth, but basically everybody's on their own, but we are together on, on our own. And it's somebody every now and then somebody has a difficult passage and it, people are around and they help and they guide along and then then it's over again. So to have, it's not necessary, especially if the group is a little bit experienced, you don't need a guide. You just... The guide is the group, you know. They they say that the the Maitreya Buddha of the future may be the Sangha. It's not one person that has all the knowledge, but I think we have to rediscover our swarm intelligence. Our that we are as a as a group, we are we know more than any one person by themselves. And the old teacher model is maybe a little bit something that is over. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, you're you're reminding me of I think someone. Quoting Thich Nhat Hanh recently, um, or fairly recently, was asked, "Who is the next Buddha?" And he said, "The next Buddha is the Sangha." It's the mm-hmm. same idea that you just—it's mm-hmm. the collective of practitioners. Um, you know, in, in the interview with Alex um, on, on Mushroom Revival, you you mentioned meeting Albert Hoffman, and I was I was intrigued in that because um, it was like. It, I almost felt like I heard a bit of the of a, of a baton handing over um, in that encounter. Can you can you describe that what that that meeting was like for you? Well, I met him several times over the years, and uh, but I had the good fortune because one of my very good friends really took care of them uh, at the very end for the last year and a half or so. So I had the good fortune to spend a whole day with him. Um, his wife already died a few months earlier, six months earlier, and uh, I spent the whole day with him. And and uh, uh, yes, that was <laughs> at that point. We, I mean, we we, we were not really uh, close bodies or something like that. No, mm-hmm. that, that would be exaggerating. But uh, at that, at, in, it, it, right at that time. One of the Swiss magazines had a, a centerfold report on our retreat center here in the uh, center of Switzerland, and it says in big letters, it said Buddha on the Rigi. Rigi is the mountain, ah. and then there was this big picture of me sitting there in robes and whole garb, and that was laying on his on his work table. So when I came, I was for him sort of representing meditation, Buddhist practice, and. And he really looked at my uh, deeply into my eyes, and he said, "These sacred substances belong into the hands of meditation." That's what he said. <laughs> so I just want to say that one more time. So, these sacred substances belong in the hands of meditation. meditation yeah, yeah. I mean, that kind of gives me chills a little bit, just because I just think of the history. Like, it's not often that you feel like you're living a historical moment. Like a, like a, a, a moment of great significance that is going to shape the future of of things in, in human society. But um, I, I definitely see, you know, Albert Hoffman's work and 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 what has come out of it 
as being part of uh, you know an awakening of consciousness in general um and you know and i'm, I'm going to link to this too we don't have to get into this now but um there was, an, there was a blog that sort of a political commentator wrote about psychedelics recently saying that you know if you go back to the ancient civilizations they all had these 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 ceremonies and rituals of of, of ingesting these sacraments that that they felt were part of uh, the, the, like the a vision for how the society could function optimally and and um, and develop whether it was in you know the, the ancient Greek uh, culture of uh, is it Elysium and or even in the in the early Vedic world with the, with the with the uh, the substance known as soma which is there's been great speculation around what that uh, absolute plant no concoction was. Um, so it's not so much that, I mean, I think there's a way that people can hear about psychedelic use and think that this is somehow this, this aberration or this new thing that everyone's buzzing about, but really it's, it's in many ways, it strikes me as a return to an ancient wisdom that is now getting updated and brought to bear for our current time. Back to the roots. Back to the roots. Yeah. Absolutely, no question about it in my mind. And 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 did it, Michael did I... Michael Crawley wrote a book, "The Secret Use of Drugs in Buddhism." Are you aware of it? I've heard of it, but I have not read it. It's sort of interesting. I mean, you know, maybe it's a little, uh, he pushes the point, but it has it, it basic assumption. I think is correct. Yeah. Look, I could keep, probably talk to you all day, but I want to be mindful of your time and respectful. You've been fantastically generous with your time, and I really appreciate talking to you, Vanya. Um, I will be linking to your retreat center. Are there is there a specific place that you'd like me to point people to find more about you? I don't think you have a personal website, but is no, I don't have a personal website. And uh, well, we have the Felsen Tour is a, is a, is a, they have a nice website, and mm -hmm. no, in Austria we have Pureg, huh? I, was, I didn't want to say this at the beginning, but I've uh, over the years I've taught a lot in Zurich myself, teaching Yin Yoga um, oh. at, a, at a yoga studio. So, and, and one of my best friend lives um, he lives down in the Tessin now. Oh. Uh, okay. And, well, and so, I hope I can greet you sometimes in Switzerland. Yeah. Well, well, what I was saying is that there are listeners to this podcast that are Swiss, German, and, <laughs> and Austrian, so they will be, um, okay. I think, hopefully, be able to find you should they do want to do so. Um, but I just want to thank you again. Thank you for your time. And I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Thank you very much. And thank you for inviting me. And thank you for your effort. I think it's uh, important work. I really do. Great stuff. Thank you. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Vanya. I certainly really enjoyed speaking with him, and I have to say, he's one of these guests that several days to weeks after the conversation, I still find um, there's kind of a residual influence of his presence just in my own psyche. Uh, he's clearly a, um, a unique and special teacher and practitioner. So I want to thank Vanya again for coming on, and I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Again, more. Uh, there's a few links in the show notes about things we talked about, specifically Michael Pollan's book, and as well as a link to the write-up about the study that Vanya was part of, looking at meditation and psychedelics. So check those out in the show notes. 
And um, so this is, as I said previously, this is the last episode of 2020 for me. I'm going to take a break. I'm going to take a winter break for about three to four weeks. And when I return, I'll be recording and broadcasting from my new home in Maine, which I'll share more about when I get there. But this winter, which again, just needs to be acknowledged, this is going to be a dark, difficult winter, I think. Um, there's a lot of a lot more difficulty to come before we really turn the corner on the pandemic and we start to, to feel like we're on stable ground again. So through this choppiness, through this difficulty, through this darkness, I wish I just wish you all well. I wish you ease. I um, hope you're safe and healthy and that your practice continues to be a refuge as we navigate through this storm. So I will see you with renewed faith and energy in 2021. And until then, I wish you all the best.